Thank you for listening to the podcasts of Grace Anglican Church in Grove City, Pennsylvania. If you've been helped by these podcasts, we encourage you to make a generous donation to Grace Anglican. You can find out how to do so on our website at graceanglicanonline.com and simply click the Giving tab. Thank you so much for considering it. Some of you in this room have seen the film Casablanca. You remember the final words that Rick said to Ilsa? It doesn't take much to see that the problems of three little people don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy world. The movie ends with the theme of smallness, how seemingly inconsequential our lives really are. It ends on a bit of a downer, but if you listen to NASA, you'll feel depressed. I mean, Creation itself can make us feel very small and somewhat inconsequential. Here are some fun facts for you. Our sun is one of at least 100 billion suns just in the Milky Way alone. Another one. The Milky Way is so big that if you traveled at the speed of light, it would take you 100,000 years just to cross it. And still more, there are 275 million stars that are born every single day. There are more stars than the grains of sand on all of Earth's beaches combined. And when you think about the vastness, not just of our world, but what's beyond our world, how could we not conclude with the psalmist who says, what is man that you're even mindful of him? What do we matter in the long run? Not just when we look at creation and all of the fathomless depths of it, but When we look at our own lives and consider our own experience, maybe our own experiences within this calendar year, perhaps you feel like you are utterly and completely failing at your parenting. You had all sorts of like archetypal designs for your life and your parenting so that you would raise children who don't sin, and yet you have failed as I have failed. But that makes you feel rather small compared to your grandiose dreams. Or maybe someone broke up with you. I was speaking with somebody the other day who had a very significant uh, relationship dissolved because the other person uh, said to you, in the end, you just weren't enough for me, which was heartbreaking and made you feel small. Or maybe you're, um, you're aging and you're in a place in life, now retired, where you look back on your career and your family life and you're wondering, what was it all for? All of the energy and effort and love and blood and sweat and tears, all of it. What can I say is the yielded result of all of those difficult challenges of my past when it doesn't seem to add up to much? Or maybe you're struggling tonight with some secret addiction and it's growing and growing and it has through the years and most people don't know about it because you're still semi-managing. But the bulk of you has been taken up by this incredible force within this negative addictive power well all of us know what it is to feel very small if we're honest we we know exactly what that means and we feel that a lot of the time even when we're faking it and trying to be bold and but we know what it is to feel small well christmas brothers and sisters christmas is a celebration of smallness It is a celebration of smallness, though not our smallness, 
but the smallness of someone else. You may have noticed that throughout all of our readings tonight, there was a theme, a theme that bound them all together, a golden thread sewn throughout each lesson, and it is the theme of a seed, S-E-E-D, seed. And I'd like to trace that theme throughout all the lessons because in the unnervingly marvelous and uncanny wisdom of God, the seed is the solution to your plight and to mine. The small seed. Now, a seed, just in terms of the natural world, when you consider an acorn, for example, connotates unlimited potential for life, right? One acorn can create a forest. All it needs to do is to be planted to have the right sort of nutrition, and then it will grow and create a tree which will produce more acorns, which can produce more trees. Unlimited potential in such a thing. Well, in the Bible, the word seed was used to speak about the biological origins of children or of just offspring in general or future generations were known as seed. Well, let's look at these lessons very briefly. Genesis 3. This is from verse 15. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers. He, the seed, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is, of course, the retelling of our cataclysmic collapse into a sort of satanic self-centeredness that we call the fall. Our forebears succumb to the satanic promises of a serpent. What's interesting at that point is within God's judgment, he doesn't scrap the whole human race. Instead, he predicts a war, a war between communities, between the seed or children of the woman and the seed or children of the serpent. And then further, he predicts that one champion out of that whole group, one singular seed, one person, will do the work that no one else could do. Namely, he will enact a holy murder. This seed child will crush the skull of the serpent and be injured with a toxic bite as he does so. And this single seed, promised right when the fall occurs, will unmake that same fall. As soon as the damage is done, God makes a vow that he will eradicate the damage. Moving along to Genesis 17, where God makes a covenant or a legal binding treaty with Abraham. This is verse 6. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed after you. In other words, God is reestablishing that seed vow that he made to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. So he chose Abraham to begin a new culture, a new race, a new nation. Abraham has promised many things. He's promised land. He's promised a long-lasting legacy. But he's also promised seed or descendants, children, who would multiply and form a nation. And not just a nation, a luminous nation, a sacred nation that would stand, at least in its in, in, intended to stand, as a juxtaposition to the various cultures that surround it. That's what he promises, Abraham. This covenant between me and you and your seed after you. Moving along to Isaiah chapter 6 in verse 13. Verse 13 has this quizzical little phrase that most people don't read. The holy seed is its stump. 
The holy seed is its stump. Well, what does that mean? Well, the prophet Isaiah lived a thousand years after Abraham was dead and gone. By Isaiah's time, Abraham's offspring grew in number and were established, well-established in the promised land. But they got so established that they grew lackadaisical about things related to the core of existence, about God and what it means to love God and love those made in God's image. And so God's chosen people actually became flagrantly unfaithful and satanically oriented. And as a result and punishment, God kicked them out of their homes in the promised land and they went into a Babylonian exile. And how does Isaiah pictorially describe that exile? You were once a tree that grew from a seed and now you're dead. You've been cut down and the holy seed is now a stump. In other words, the situation looks completely bleak, utterly hopeless, and lifeless. But buried within a dead stump is the primeval promise. The primeval promise that the seed will yet prevail. Because the stump is still the holy seed. Moving along to Isaiah 11, verse 1. The hope arrives. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. You don't know who Jesse is? It's King David's dad. A shoot from the stump of Jesse. In other words, this stump that is Abraham's great nation, this family looked hopelessly dead. And yet, Isaiah says there's going to be one exception to that deadness. A single shoot that sprouts from this seemingly dead tree. Uh, And this person will be a king, will be an emperor figure, a great monarch, a man of the spirit, a man who is full of justice and integrity and honesty, whose power to restore the world will flow even so far um, that it restores not only human beings, but the natural world as well, right? The lion will lay with the lamb. Everything will be healed within a destroyed a creation that is red in tooth and claw because of this new emperor of light, this single shoot that will come from the stump of Jesse. And then, of course, enter Luke's gospel, the first chapter, where the, an announcement is given to the Blessed Virgin Mary, who hears the announcement and immediately begins to sing a famous song that we know as the Magnificat. And at the very end of that sacred song, She remembers via her lyrics that ancient promise made to Abraham, that seed vow. And she sings, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. As soon as she receives the word of a miraculous seed in her womb, she starts singing about the ancient vow that was made in relation to the great descendant that was to come. And now she is essentially saying in her songs, in the past we have had signs, we've had signals, we've had parables, we have had teachings, we've had prophets, we've had a lot of words for a long, long time, all vowing that this would happen, and now it finally is happening. It's all becoming real and true. And then, of course, later in Luke's Gospel, in the second chapter, the offspring, the seed the singular Savior has arrived and is born. A single Israelite 
was born just like us, wailed in the dark like we did when we were born as infants. And yet, he's not like us. He is and he's not. He has eyes like yours, a skin tone probably darker than most skin tones in this room, uh, a child who had a, a mother who was probably worried about him, a father who was worried about the mother who was worried about him, grew up just like you and not like you because attached to him is eternity. This is why he's given a nickname in Matthew's gospel. Matthew kind of gives Jesus two names, right? He says, you will call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, and you will call him Emmanuel, sort of a nickname or a title, which means God with us. And God with us not as a metaphor, God with us not as sort of a heroic figure that resembles in some way or reflects the divine. No, in fact, God from God, light from light, attached to human flesh and a human heartbeat and a human mind. The infant was conjoined to God himself, the great I am, the eternal king, the end soft, the ground of being, the ancient of days, fastened himself to frail flesh. And so when God comes to us, when he makes himself fully known and as close as he can possibly be, he bypasses convention, expectation, and arrives non-archetypally. God does not arrive as he often does in Hollywood films. He doesn't arrive in lightning-charged clouds or in radiating, threatening light waves. He isn't born into the Ritz-Carlton or temples or Wall Street or the White House. He comes to us in deliberate non-romanticism, in profound and even agonizing humility under the threat of a crazy king within a broken, jagged world, within a world that didn't have quite enough room for him. God comes to us as weak, as unassuming, but as a wise man in the New Testament once wrote, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. And so that is the biblical tale of the seed that was vowed during the fall and has now come to fruition in the person of Christ, that singular one that would overtake all that is wrong and aberrant with you, with me, with the world. And so our lessons begin with a devilish and destructive meltdown and conclude with a tiny infant, the promised seed. He is the Christmas solution. Fascinating story. Fascinating spirituality. How does God deal with our nightmarish forces of destruction within our world and in ourselves? How will God solve war and genocide and racism and the destruction of creation and our pettiness, our lies, our betrayals, our dark addictions, our severities, our cruelty, our malice? How will he conquer the caverns of our loss, the emptiness inside each of us, the incurable thoughts of ending it all, the compulsions and defections, the hazards and the self-harm. The answer is a single seed, one exception to the rule, one descendant among the seven billion of us, just one. That's all it took, because this one was a unique one who was God with us, who could actually solve the crisis. And so Christmas, friends, is a revelation. It reveals who God really is at the nucleus of his nature. Christmas proves that God is not who many of us assume he is. He is not here to break our bones. He is not here to fill our bodies with Lou Gehrig's disease and our brains with dementia. God isn't here to accuse us of our flagrant failures until we crumple in a corner. By contrast, God is here to win us back by humble love. 
and smallness. He comes to small people in the form of smallness. And while God's humility begins at Christmas, it doesn't end there. In some ways, the Messiah gets even smaller as he ages. He's God the infant, of course, then God the toddler, then God the child, then God the teenager, and eventually God the man. And God the man who accepts a shaming fate to be bitten by the great red dragon, the viper of history, who would sink his poisonous fangs into that Christ. God was humbled at the birth of Jesus, but later he would become humiliated upon the cross of Jesus. But this was the Messiah's job. He is the tiny seed that falls to the ground and dies. And in doing so, he has taken away your sin and the sin of the whole world. Christmas shouts, this is your revelation. This is God. This is what God is like at his core. Approachable, accessible, tender, close. Humble from beginning to end. I hope you remember the film, It's a Wonderful Life. In our family, we watch it every Christmas. In the film, uh, Jimmy Stewart, that's my best impression, plays George Bailey, a man who, after a series of horrifically unfortunate events, believes himself to be worth more dead than alive. There's a very moving scene in which George Bailey um, prays quietly at a bar after discovering that his uncle had lost a fortune in the family business, and there are, there's no way to repair the damage. And he prays this prayer, Dear Father in heaven, I'm not a praying man, but if you're there and you can hear me, show me the way I am at the end of my rope. And then George Bailey begins to weep intensely. It has surprised some audiences to learn that the character George Bailey was not scripted to cry at all during that scene. But Jimmy Stewart did. It wasn't George Bailey who was crying. It was the man portraying him. And in a 1987 interview, Stewart recalled the scene and said this, As I said those words, I felt the loneliness the hopelessness of people who had nowhere to turn. And I broke down sobbing. That was not planned at all. But the power of that prayer, the realization that our Father in heaven is there to help the hopeless, reduced me to tears. If you think you're big this Christmas, it's a delusion. You are not powerful a flu will take you down. You are not strong. You are not as bold as you think you are. And neither am I. The truth is, whether we like it or not, that we are very fragile and small and finite and limited and helpless. And we often feel inconsequential. But that puts us in the best company ever. To quote a great hero king, for the greatest among us has in fact become the smallest. The mightiest among us has become one who serves. The result of this small seed is that we, you and me, in all of our smallness, 
are granted an elevated dignity, for you are now the sons and daughters of God, bound inevitably for full restoration and a life without death. So Merry Christmas. Free at last, Amen. They took your life. They could